Well, good morning. I'm Pastor Ted. I am one of the pastors here at the church, and uh, happy Mother's Day, ladies. Good to have you here. Uh, told some of you guys today, uh, I'm not saying happy Mother's Day to you, but hello, welcome. It's good to see you. Hey, uh, let's open our Bibles to 1 John chapter 5, shall we? Let's finish, let's finish this first epistle of John today. 1 John chapter 5, we're going to be picking up in verse 14. And as you're making your way there in honor of Mother's Day, I'm going to introduce today's text with a story about my mom. Um, growing up, we had a German shepherd named Please, kind of a weird name for a dog. He used to jump up on my sister's bed. She'd say, please get down. My parents named him Please. So Please <clears throat> was our German shepherd. Cool dog. He actually was uh, trained by the San Diego Police Department uh, as a police dog. Uh, the problem was he, he tried to kill his handler twice. And uh, so they, uh, <laughs> police department brass, decided that the dog was too dangerous for their officer, so they had to get rid of him. So in their infinite wisdom, they uh, sold him to a family of five with three small kids. <laughs> my family. Um, <laughs> it's a true story. Uh, my mom loved this dog. She spoiled him rotten. And uh, because of just the incredible love that she had for this dog and how she spoiled him so much, he became part of our family. And, um, you know, it was crazy. He tried to kill his, his officer, but I would ride on his back like a horse and he'd just take me all over the place. I mean, he's just, just the coolest dog. And um, the cool thing about this dog was that he was bad, man. He was a bad dog in the sense that if you were part of our family, if you were a friend, if you were, you know, family to us, you're family to please, man. It's cool. If you weren't, and if you had an ill agenda towards us, then please had an ill agenda towards you. You know, even if he thought you might be, you know, out of line. You know, my mom was at the gas station one day, and it was back in the days when, you know, you'd give them the gas card, and, the, and they'd fill your tank, and then they'd run it through that little plastic, you know, thing, and they'd hand it to you. you guys remember the, the blue? You got a flashback now, all of you that are old like me. Well, the, my mom the, gets the gas, and she gives the guy her card, and he swipes the card. He gives it back to my mom to sign. Well, as he's handing this thing to my mom, please saw it as a wrong move, and he grabbed that thing out of this guy's, you know, hand. And my dog, my mom, me eating a bag of M&M's, she's encouraging this. She starts feeding the dog M&M's. Good dog, good dog. You know, this guy's like, lady, you're crazy. Go, go have your husband come back and sign for this kind of, you know, thing. Anyway, that was please. If you were in our family, you were his friend. If you weren't, you were not his friend. Well, one day, this traveling salesman comes to our house. And, um, and so my folks at the time living in La Jolla, the guy comes in, knocks on the door. My mom opens the door and, um, and the guy starts his, his pitch. My mom politely says, no, thank you. I'm not interested. Didn't want to hear his sales pitch. She goes to close the door and the guy sticks his foot in the door. And not only does he stick his foot in the door, he starts pushing his way into the house. Well, please sign. He was not pleased. So he takes off. Please is going to eat this guy for lunch, man. He's done. And so please is, is heading for it. Well, my folks had sort of a larger foyer with, with marble floors. And as soon as please hit that marble floor, he lost traction, which gave the salesman just enough break to run for his life. So he, he takes his foot out of the door, starts running. My mom throws the door open, says, get him, please. <laughs> <laughs> and so the guy is running for his life. Well, please, you know, finally, you know, burning out there on the, the marble, he hits, he gets to the threshold where he can get some traction and it is off to the race. Like he shot out of a gun. This guy now from our house or, you know, from our front door, there was a courtyard with a gate. And so the guy got out of the front door. He's making his way across the courtyard. He's getting to that gate, that front gate. Well, he just just made it by the hair of his chin, man. Just made it out of this thing. Slams the gate behind him. Please hits that gate with all four of his paws, man. Just wham. Hit it so hard he actually pulled some of the hinges out of the wall. <clears throat> but the gate held and the salesman got away with his life. They never saw the salesman again. He was gone. Never came back to, to the neighborhood. But here's the deal. 
The salesman wasn't welcome when he came knocking on my mom's door. She didn't hear, want to hear what he had to say. She certainly didn't want to, to, wasn't interested in what he was selling. And any confidence that this salesman might have had that he could change my mom's mind and get her to listen to him, any of his, his confidence was shattered by 100 pounds of very angry dog. Gone. Now, I tell you that story as an introduction because here in our text, John says that unlike this salesman that I've described, that as God's children, we can have confidence when we come knocking on God's door because he will hear us, he will receive us. First John chapter 5, beginning in verse 14. Now, this is the confidence that we have in him, John says, that if we ask anything according to his will... He hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. We'll stop there for now, pick it up in just a minute. But here's, here's the idea. If, if you're a note taker, that word con, uh, confidence there in, in verse 14, you might want to circle that. It builds on last week's message. If you'll recall, if you're here last week, uh, we saw that we have a uh, a confidence in God. That, that word confidence, by the way, in, in the Greek, it means fearless. It means bold, fearless and bold. And so the idea last week we saw is that we can be fearless and bold in, in our faith in the Lord because he has given us abundant evidence that indeed Jesus is the Christ. He's the son of the living God. So we looked at this last week, this overwhelming ocean of evidence that we have that Jesus is who he said he is. He did what God said he was going to do. It was prophesied. It's abundantly clear. The evidence is all in. There's no other verdict that a sane, rational person can come to except for the fact that he's God. And so now what John is saying is that because he's God and if then in that place you've come to that conclusion, you've asked him to be your Lord and Savior, you've surrendered your life to him, well in that place then now you have an incredible confidence and an incredible boldness because you're his child, you can come boldly before his throne of grace. As a matter of fact, in, in Hebrews, Hebrews 4.16, the writer of Hebrews tells us, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. We prayed this. This is the boldness that we have. We're his children. Knock on that door. Come on in. We don't have to worry. He's not going to sick please on us. No, we're welcome. The door's opened to us at any time. The Apostle Paul told the Ephesians in Ephesians 3.12, in Jesus, we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. Now, eternal life isn't just access to God someday in the future. It's not just that. It is that, but it's not just that. Eternal life is also something that we have access to here and now. It begins the moment you surrender your life to the Lordship of Christ. In that place, you enter into eternal life. And so now, as a child of God, you have access to God forever and at any time. Again, John says, verse 14, this is the confidence we have in him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Now, Again, so as believers, we enjoy this unlimited access to God the Father, but this is only a privilege that is reserved for believers, those who have professed faith in Christ. That's what John means here when he says we have in him. It's confidence that we have. Who's the we? It's we who have trusted our life to the Lordship of Christ. If you have not surrendered your life to Christ, then you don't have that confidence. As a matter of fact... Unless it's a prayer of repentance, the Bible says God won't even hear your prayer. So if you are an unbeliever, if you're a person who's not surrendered your life to the Lordship of Christ, you can pray till you're blue in the face. God ain't listening. He's not going to hear it. It'll, just like that salesman, my mom what, didn't, wasn't a member of the family. She didn't want what he was selling. She didn't want to listen to him. And God is not going to listen to an unbeliever. Again, unless it's a prayer of repentance, then he pays real close attention. The moment you surrender your life to the Lordship of Christ, you've got his undivided attention. He will hear that prayer. But if you're an unbeliever, he won't hear that prayer. You want proof? Psalm 66. I won't have you turn there for time's sake. I'll throw it up on the screen for you. But listen to what David said in Psalm 66, verses 18 through 20. He said, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. 
But certainly God has heard me. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. Why? Well, because David had faith in God. And so God would listen to him. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. Continuing, blessed be God who has not turned away my prayer nor his mercy from me. Now, I want to leave this up on the screen for a second for you. Look at that word regard there. If I regard iniquity in my heart, literally in the Hebrew, this word means to present yourself to. In other words, this isn't just like you've fallen in to iniquity. It didn't mean you stumbled. I mean, we're all sinners saved by grace. We all will have sin in our life. We don't want to, but we do. That's the, the get. That's not what this is saying. That word regard means to present yourself to. In other words, I've given myself entirely to, I've presented myself as a gift saying, I am giving myself to you. This is, this is not an occasional slip up or an occasional falling. No, this is a, I've presented myself. Now, Keeping that up there, look at the next word, iniquity. If I present myself to, if I regard iniquity, iniquity in the Hebrew literally means idol. That's what it means. It comes from a root word which means to pant. And here's the idea. It's what you pant after. It's like you're, 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 you're breathless, breathlessly panting after this, this idol. That's what iniquity is. Now, an idol is that which you worship. An idol is anything that you worship. And we are by nature worshipers. The the question in life isn't, will you worship? The question is, what will you worship? Or who will you worship? You're a worshiper. That's what you're made to be. It's part of your design. And so you're going to worship something. The question is, who or what is, is it that you're going to worship? Now, for those who do not worship the true and the living God, Scripture is clear, God will not hear their prayers. That's the whole idea, the whole get. We're going to come back to this at the end of the message, but the point that John is making here in our text is simply this, that as God's children, we have confidence, fearless, bold confidence to come to Him in prayer at any time, and He will listen to us. He will hear us. Now, there's a lot of confusion about prayer, so I want to dig in here for a little bit, just sort of camp out here. I don't know about you, but, you know, as we read this, and the first, first thing that sticks out is that John says, if we ask anything, right? There in verse 14, if we ask anything. And again, I don't know about you, but I'm amazed that, well, I, I don't always ask, Right? You're going through, this is a conditional thing. If we ask anything, there's a condition attached. And you would think, okay, I'm a believer. I've got bold access to God and I'm stressing about something that, you know, with this privilege, I would run to him. It doesn't always work that way. I had a situation recently and I was stressing about something. The irony is I can't remember today what I was stressing about, which is a sermon all in itself. But I was stressing about something and I confided in my wife, Brenda, that I was really stressed about this thing. And she said, as, you know, your wife does, guys. She's like, well, have you prayed about it? And I'm like, come on. You know, prayer, prayer is important, and this is a really important thing. And of course, prayer is indicated in this thing. She's like, and she saw right through, she, uh-huh, have you prayed about it? I'm like, well, uh, no, I haven't prayed about it. And she just gave, you know, just give me that, that smirk on her face. I'm like, Ugh. And, and, and maybe, you're, I don't know, maybe I'm the only one, but I, I know, I'm amazed at the number of times that I, I give all sorts of energy to worrying about something and I don't give any energy to praying about it. Now, I was thinking through this and I'm like, gosh, what is, you know, why is it that we don't always ask? <laughs> if we ask, why don't we always ask? There's a lot of reasons. I've got two main reasons. They both have to do with tr- this issue of trusting. And I think the first main reason is because a lot of times we trust in other things instead of trusting in God, right? Uh, let me use a financial problem as, a, as an illustration here. You know, hypothetically, you're struggling with a, a financial issue. Who isn't these days? So let, let's say you're struggling with a financial issue. And, and if you're anything like me, what happens is, well... Instead of trusting in God, I start trusting in my own ability to sort of engineer a solution, right? And so if I'm going through some sort of a financial thing, 
My first inclination isn't always to get on my knees and pray. A lot of times I give a lot of energy, a lot of time, a lot of attention to engineering some sort of a solution to my problem. And so I'm thinking, oh, gosh, you know, financial issue. Well, gosh, I could work some overtime. Maybe I could sell something or maybe I could take a second job. And you you sort of, it runs its gamut. You like put a lot of time and a lot of energy into that. Who can identify with that? Where you just sort of, yeah, okay, I'm talking to the right people here, right group of people. So we, we, and we put a lot of confidence in ourselves, and so I'm engineering it, and my first inclination isn't always to run to God. Another reason that I don't think that, that we often ask is that instead of looking to, to God, well, I look to somebody else. You know, sometimes we look to ourselves, sometimes we look to other people. You know, um, gosh, I hope that guy calls and, and offers me that job that he says he has. You know, or gosh, I hope the state will extend my unemployment. Or man, I'm really hoping that that the bank is going to work with me and do that loan modification on my mortgage. You know, and so all of our energy and all of our focus and all of our hope and attention goes to someone else, some sort of savior stepping in and helping me and delivering me from this thing. But again, it's not always my first inclination to look to and to trust in God. And, and so there, there are these reasons why we don't trust in the Lord. Another reason that people don't always uh, turn to God in prayer is that they don't believe it works. They, you know, they, if you notice with me, he, he says, if we ask anything according to his will. And a lot of times what happens, what people will do is they don't think prayer works in the sense that they go, well, you know, I prayed and God didn't do it. That means prayer doesn't work. Well, it's got to be according to his will. See, just because you pray for something doesn't mean that you're going to get it, right? I mean, I asked my dad for a gun when I was five years old and he said no, right? Okay, so (laughs) here's the thing. It doesn't mean that my inquiry failed. I, I didn't walk away from that going, oh, so I'm not going to ask my dad for anything because he said no. That doesn't mean my inquiry failed. There are other things I'm going to ask my dad for that he would give me. But at five years old, when I asked him for a gun, he said no because he didn't want me to shoot Bobby Hansaker. That's why he didn't give me a gun. He knew that it wasn't good for me. It wasn't in accordance with his will. And that's how God is, guys. And that's how we have to look at this dynamic of prayer. We have to look at it like we're kids because we are. And so we come to God, our Father, and we ask something of him. We need to understand he's got veto power. It's within his prerogative because he has a better view than we have to be able to say, that's good for you, that's not. And he can say yes, he can say no. It, it, again, it's his prerogative. Sometimes in this relationship, as we're referring to God and we pray and we understand, hey, it's a, it's a parent-child relationship, I'm the child. But sometimes then the response to our prayers is going to be yes, Sometimes the response to our prayers is going to be no. Sometimes the response to our prayers is going to be wait, right? Scotty came to me when he was, when he was eight. My son, Scotty, says, uh, can I have a shotgun? And I said, you know, I, I actually want to buy you a shotgun, but you're a little too young right now. Wait a couple of years. And, you know, I used to take Scotty out with me and let him shoot my gun and, and stuff like that. And I wanted to buy him a shotgun. The answer for him was wait, so when he turned 10, I said, you know what, Scotty, I, I think I, I might be ready to buy you a gun. Memorize your times tables, and, uh, and I'll buy you that gun. And uh, cool story, actually, because at the time, he, he was working on a movie. He was on the set. The, teacher was, the set teacher was teaching him, and she's like, wow, Scotty, you're very, you're, you're very committed to memorizing your times tables. And Scotty said, yeah, my dad told me he's going to buy me a shotgun if, if I memorize my times tables. <laughs> Typical Hollywood type. She's like appalled. She's aghast. She's like, are you you're going to buy your 10-year-old a gun? I'm like, have you seen him shoot? He's great. Yes, you know. I'm not going to teach him his times tables then. I'm like, lady, teach him his times tables. He'll be fine. He had, my answer for Scotty was wait. And he waited. And when he was ready, you know, I, I, I answered his request. This is the way it is with God. 
Another problem that we have with prayer is that some of us think of God like a pinata. You know, God's the big celestial pinata in the sky, right? And we want something and it's up there. You know, I, I want the boat. I, I want, you know, the new car. I want a smoking hot wife pinata in the sky. You know, I want a husband that's not going to forget my birthday pinata in the sky, right? And so that's the way we relate to God. And we see prayer as the stick. Man, and if I swing this stick long enough and hard enough, eventually, man, I'm going to connect and then out are going to flow all of the rewards, all of the, the goodies that, you know, that it is wanting. But God doesn't work that way. James 1.17 tells us that every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and it comes down from the Father of lights with whom there's no variation or shadow of turning. You know, the idea is that, you know, he's God. Some people say, well, you know, I told God what to do, and he didn't do it. Well, yeah, because he's God, and you're not, you know? And so this has to be our attitude where we're like, okay, look, he is a good father, and I have to trust him that he knows how to give good gifts to his children. That's what Jesus told his disciples in Matthew seven eleven. He said, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more does your father in heaven know how to give good gifts to his children? I'll tell you how I remember that verse that it's Matthew seven eleven. is that when I want a good gift, I'm going to go to seven eleven, man. And this is, you know, and my good father is going to let me have what's good for me. And so this is, this is the whole attitude. Now, the key to all of this is his will. That's the key. See, let me tell you what many people do instead. Many people, for, 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 for many people, it's not about his will. It's about my will, right? And, and a lot of people struggle with this. They, they, they live their lives fixated around this whole notion, this whole idea that it's all about me and it's all about my will. That, that bumper sticker that, that I've seen around time that says, be reasonable, do it my way. Some people, this is, their, this is the motto. This is the, the, the tagline of their life. Be reasonable, do it my way. And so they live their lives with this attitude that says, you know, it's not about your will. It's about my will. And so in living your life that way, it's a very short road until you derail it's a very short road until your life goes off the tracks and you, you have the train wreck that's inevitable. And what I've noticed is that people that live like that, they all have a very similar prayer life. And the prayer life is, Lord, help. Lord, fix this. Because they get their life completely screwed up because it's all about me and it's all about what I want. And now all my, my prayers are, give me all this and fix all this. Well, and God looks up from, down from heaven and he looks at our life and he's like, I'm not going to answer that prayer. You know, the, the, the gal's like, oh, Lord, uh, I, I love him. I know I shouldn't be sleeping with him and I know we shouldn't be living together, but uh, he plays the guitar and he tells me he loves me. And, and I just, if he, you could just get him saved, Lord, if you could just get him saved, everything. And God's looking down. He's like, that's a you're in your situation because of sin and self-centeredness, and I'm not going to answer a prayer to help you continue in a sinful, self-centered lifestyle. We have to pray according to his will. God's will, guys, has to be lived in. It's just not something that we manipulate in prayer so that we can continue living in disobedience. We have to live in his, well, in his will, and we have to pray according to his will. And isn't that what Jesus taught his disciples? They came to him in Luke's gospel to say, hey, teach us to pray. And in uh, Luke eleven two, he says, he said to them, when you pray, say, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is the way God taught us to pray. Now, Again, if you're like me, you have a question that comes to your mind. Because you hear, okay, we have to, whatever we ask in accordance to his will, he hears us. The question that comes to my mind, and maybe to yours, is, well, why even pray at all? 
Really. I mean, if, if God's only going to hear the prayers that I pray in accordance with his will, and if he's only going to answer the prayers that are in accordance to his will, why even pray at all? Why does God want me to pray? I mean, why do, you know, it's just, why don't why you just do it? Well, here's why. Because God wants us to get to the place where we trust him for everything. He wants us to get to the place where we look to him for everything. And here's the idea. Prayer isn't a menu, okay? I mean, you know, here's the thing. With, I'll illustrate the point, why even pray at all. Brenda and I, we're, we're, um, we're going out to dinner last week, and I asked her, hey, where do you want to have dinner? And she says to me, well, you know, let's go. And she makes her recommendation, wherever it was. I can't remember because I didn't want to go there. And I told her, and I said, <laughs> it wasn't Mother's Day. Come on. So I said, <laughs> no, she told me where she wanted to go. And I said, oh, let's not go there. Let's go here. Well, she, she called me. She's like, you do this all the time. You ask me where I want to go, and then you shoot it down. And then we end up going where you want to go. So why don't we just cut out the middleman? You just tell me where you want to go, and we'll go there. And I'm like, all right, let's go here. No. <laughs> and, and a lot of times, it's, that's, the whole, that's the scenario that I get in my head when I think, okay, well, I've got to pray in accordance with his will. Well, why don't we cut out the middleman and God just direct me wherever? I mean, why ask? Because God's concerned about my heart. He's concerned about my attitude. He wants me to get me to the place where I'm looking to him and I'm not looking to my own needs. See, again, prayer isn't a menu. Prayer isn't about satisfying our hunger. It's about satisfying our heart, okay? And God knows what's best for our heart isn't always what we hunger for. Let me say that again. God knows what's best for our heart isn't always what we hunger for. See, our appetites aren't always good for us, and God knows that. And that's not to say that God's never going to grant you desires, but more often than not, what we discover is that prayer is more about moving our hearts than it is about moving God's hand. It's more about changing you. Now, let me just ask you a question. A little participation here, show of hands. How many of you have prayed and found that God didn't answer your prayer the way you wanted, but that he changed you in the process? How many of you experienced that? See what I'm talking about? God's more interested in your heart than he is in the desires and the hungers that you have. And so often, the the way it works out, we're like this. You know, I come to God in prayer and I'm like, God, I hate that guy. Make a house fall on him. You know, I hate this guy. Uh, you haven't felt that? Maybe, I don't know, maybe it's just me. But I'm like, you know, this is where I start off. And so my, my heart's attitude is, God, let's just, you know, we'd all be a lot better off if you just made a house fall on this guy. And so, you know, this is where it's at. And God speaks to our hearts in that place. And he says, look, hey, Ted, I say in my word to pray for your enemies. And I'm like, okay, God, kill him. In Jesus' name, amen. There, I prayed for him. You know, and God's like, no, no, I, Ted, I want you to pray for him and, and I want to save this guy. I want to use him. I want to change his life. And you're like, no, God, that's not the agenda. You're going to make a house fall on him. And this is, and God's like, look, get off of my throne. Go read your Bible. Go spend some time in prayer. Go wait upon me. Cause Ted, I'm a, what if I treated you like that, Ted? And God starts showing me, you know, the error of my ways and he starts ministering to me. And what happens is he doesn't allow me to order off the menu of hate to say he needs to die. What happens is he says, no, you need to die. And you need to to settle your heart before mine and you need to present that you need to pray in accordance with my will and present that prayer to me. And in order for you to know my will, you got to spend time waiting upon me, reading my word, understanding my heart. And then, Ted, what's going to happen is I'm going to change you. you got a lot of anger and bitterness and resentment, and you, you're, you're angry towards that guy. And you're not looking at him through the eyes of Christ. And I want you to do that. And so I, I, I pray, and I labor in prayer, and it's hard, and I'm like... Okay, bless him, Lord. Just bless him already. And let's just get this over with. And God begins to soften my heart. And now I'm praying, Lord, bless that guy. Lord, he's, he's out there. I've been there. And now God begins to change my heart. You see, and this is what God wants to do all along. God, you mean I got to be nice to that guy? Yeah. You got to be nice to him. 
Wow, who's going to lead him to Christ, Lord? Who am I talking to, Dad? Oh, really? See, and God begins to, to move on. See, prayer isn't leveraging God to build my kingdom. It's about loving God so that he can build his kingdom through us. And that begins in our heart. And so that's why God has us come to him in prayer with everything. Even if, if what we originally are asking isn't in accordance with his will, he wants to conform us into his will. And you, the ability for him to build his kingdom through us starts in our hearts. And our hearts are corrected in prayer. See, when we're Christians, guys, our, our prayer, it's not just selfish. It's not supposed to be. See, it's, it's supposed to be this loving thing where we pray for other people too. And that's called intercession or intercessory prayer. And as we continue in verse 16, that's exactly where John goes. He says, if anyone sees his brother sinning a sin, which does not lead to death, he will ask and he will give him life for those who commit sin not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should pray about that. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is sin not leading to death. What does all that mean? Well, a couple of things. First of all, here's what happens. People bug us, okay? They do. Some of us more than others. I don't know. Me and Caitlin are in a group. People bug us, man. And, and they sin against us. And at some point, we get so fed up that what happens in our hearts is we're tempted to trash them. We're tempted to trash our relationship with them. We're tempted to trash their reputation. This is the temptation that happens. And if we're not careful, what happens is that now their sin becomes our sin. And so there, this person has sinned, he's wronged me, but now I've taken this into my heart, and now I react in a way that's ungodly, and now I'm no better than they are. I've just become a sinner like them. And so what's, what's supposed to happen here is that, well, we're supposed to be able to take that person to see that they're in sin, even if they've sinned against us, and we need to, to pray for them. And this, this is what God tells us. He says, pray for those who, who, who hurt you. Pray for those who, who spitefully use you. And, and this, is, this is what we have to do. Let me ask you a question right now. I'm not looking for a show of hands, but just something for you to consider. Who are you gossiping and complaining about right now? Somebody that sinned against you, and you've been, and you've been gossiping, you've been harboring it in your heart. Who is that person? You got that person's face in mind? You got the, you, you picture him? See, God would say to you, don't sin. You need to pray for that person. And you say, Ted, you have no idea what that person did to me. I want that person to burn in hell. I know you do. I know. I've been there. But God died for them. And he wants to, to see them in a right relationship with him. And so I would say to you that whoever that person is and whatever that situation is, God would say to you, turn them over, be praying for them. And it doesn't have to be all puppy dogs and butterflies. It doesn't have to be, you know, kumbaya moment. Your feelings don't have to be in it. It's just an issue of obedience. Lord, you tell me to pray for them, I'm going to pray for them. And you do, just, just from obedience, because God tells you to. And be prepared, because in the process, God wants to change your heart. And guys, for some of us, that's the price of admission. That's why God brought us here today, just that point. I, I can say that by the authority of, uh, of the Holy Spirit. I know that for some of us, that's what God wanted you to hear today. For some of us, that's what God wanted us to hear. All right, I'm done. I'll, I'll be done. No, uh, <laughs> but for some of us, that is. God wants us to hear that point. Now, there are um, what, uh, there's one pastor going through this section. He, he says there's some Scooby-Doo verses in, in this section of Scripture. You know, the Scooby-Doo verse where you, whoa, you know, you read those, what's that kind of thing? And, and, <laughs> and this is one of those Scooby-Doo verses. It's like, you know, there's some sin leading to death. There's some sin that doesn't lead to death. And you're like, what does that mean? Well, let me take a stab at it. <laughs> 
Theologians have debated this for a year. What is, it, what, is, what is John talking about here when he says there's a sin that leads to death, there's a sin that doesn't lead to death, and I'd say you should, don't say that you should pray about the sin that leads to death. What's he talking about? Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you several explanations from what different theologians have to say about this. I'll let you draw your own conclusion, right? I'm going to give several explanations. I'll tell you what I think. And, you know, you can prayerfully decide for yourself. But one of the explanations for these verses that talk about, hey, you know, there's sin leading to death and there's some that don't and, and all that. One explanation is that sin that leads to death refers to really, really bad sins. When John says there's sin that leads to death, he's talking about really, really bad sins and that not all sins are really, really bad. That's like saying not all water is wet, in my opinion, but that's, that's what he says. Now, the Catholic Church teaches this doctrine. They teach that some sins are really, really bad and other sins aren't really, really bad. Uh, they categorize them into mortal sins and venial sins, all right? Now, mortal sins are what they would qualify as really, really bad sins. This is like being a terrorist or being a Boston Celtics fan, you know? This is, this is a really, really bad sin, all right? Now, now, venial sins, those that aren't really, really bad, they're, they're less bad sins. This is like, you know, a speeding ticket or if you're a cat lover, something like that, all right? These aren't really, they're sins, but they're just not really, really bad sins, okay? Um. Now, this can't be the true interpretation because the Bible clearly says in Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin is death. And, and, the, and John himself says that, that all sin, well, let me find the verse, uh, verse 17, all unrighteousness is sin. And so we all have sin. I don't think that, that that's one of the explanations and I don't think that, that's, that that holds water biblically. Here's another explanation. Some say that what John's referring to here is apostasy. In other words, that someone can lose their salvation, and that's what he's talking about. There are several problems with that. Let me start with our very next verse, which illustrates the problem with that, verse 18. He says, we know that whoever is born of God does not sin. Now, that doesn't mean you never sin. We covered the same point. He uses the same verbiage back in chapter 3. What, it means, what he's talking about here is a lifestyle. If you're born of God, you're not going to continue in a lifestyle of sin. There's going to be a change in your life. It doesn't mean you never sin. It just means that your lifestyle of habitual sin is going to change. You're going to be marked and characterized by guilt and, and repentance and, and confession of your sin. This is going to be the hallmark of your Christian faith. So he says, we know whoever is born of God does not sin or does not continue in sin, but he who has been born of God keeps himself. In other words, what this means is you're going to keep yourself in a right relationship with God. You're going to confess your sin. You're going to repent. You're going to continue in that relationship with God. That's what he means here by keeps himself. And he continues uh, there. He said, he who's been born of God keeps himself and the wicked one does not touch him. That word touch, if you're a note taker, it's interesting. You circle that next to it, write the word attached to, because that's what that word means. Now, here's the explanation. It doesn't mean that, that the impact of, of satanic forces are not going to touch you from time to time. Okay, that's not what that means. I mean, we all are going to be tempted to sin. We all are going to be ha have those times when, when Satan is allowed to touch us in some capacity as the Lord might allow. Read the book of Job. That, that will happen. But what, what he's referring to here is that he's not going to be able to attach to us. This is the same word, by the way, when he says... Uh, the wicked one does not touch us, that word touch, it's the same Greek word that's used in John chapter 20 when Mary comes to Jesus after he's been resurrected and he says to her, don't cling to me. That's the exact same word that's used here. And so the idea here is that as a believer in God, that the enemy is not going to cling to you. Right? They used to call uh, Don Gotti Teflon Don because every, he, he, all the charges against him he, he would get out of. Well, as a Christian, you're Teflon, man. The enemy's not going to cling to you. And so, so this is the, the idea here that he's talking about. Also, over in verse 13, if you'll look there, John says, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Now, what does eternal mean if it's not for forever? 
right? And so there, there's some serious problems with saying, well, this, when John says there's some sins that lead to death and there's some sins that don't lead to death, there's some serious problems with saying, well, he's talking about somebody who loses their salvation. That's, that's, that's not biblical. Some say, and I think that this is, this is a proper explanation, some say that what John's referring to here is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus, in chapter 12, uh, around 30, verse 31, was talking with his disciples, and he said, basically, I'll paraphrase, I can forgive any sin, but I can't forgive blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, just to, to boil it down to its simplest definition, is that you reject Christ. That you, that you, re, you do not place your saving faith in him, but, but you reject him. And, and God says, I can't save that sin. He demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, but we have to surrender our life to the Lordship of Christ. And if we refuse to surrender our life to the Lordship of Christ through unbelief, then there's no hope for us. And I think that is the correct answer. That's the correct interpretation of what John is saying here. Something else to keep in mind here in regards to what John is saying here, and I'm going to put this up on the screen for time's sake, but listen to the words of Jesus in John 17. In his high priestly prayer, this is right before he goes to the cross, he's talking to God the Father, and he says this, John 17, verses 6 through 9, I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have known that all things which you have given me are from you. For I have given to them the words which you have given me, and they have received them and have known surely that I came forth from you. They have believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me for they are yours. And so here's the idea. Jesus made a distinction. He prayed for those that the Father would give him. And God makes the same distinction in the book of Jeremiah, where he says to pray for the believers, but not for those who have rejected God. Now, the point is simply this. We love people. We do. And we long for their salvation. And you have people in your life they're not saved, and it breaks your heart, and you long for their salvation, and you reach out to them, and you try and, and reason with them, and you strive, and you pray, and you stress, but they just don't care, and the truth is, they may never care. That's, that's the sad reality of, what, of the life that we live. They reject Jesus at every turn, and at some point, we have to let them go. Now, that's not to say that we're callous. That's not when we say, well, go to hell then. I mean, it's, that's, that's not the attitude. Here's the attitude. This is the idea. When John says, look, I don't say that you should pray for them. Here's the idea. I've, the beauty of prayer as a Christian is that I can come to God and I can beg him and plead him and I can plead with him. And I, the Bible says the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. And I don't know what your mindset is in effective, fervent, but I picture laboring in prayer. And so we do that, but we're praying to God the Father, and it's in his will that's being done, and so there reaches a point where we go, you know what, God, I've begged you, I've pleaded, I've begged them, I've done everything that I know to do, I can't think of anything else that I can do, I'm sick over this, and you know what, Lord, I'm going to leave it with you, I'm done. I'm not done with them, I'm not done hoping for them, but I'm done praying about this. I prayed, and now I set this at your feet, Lord. And I can leave it with you. And, th- and that's the whole idea here is that we can let go of it and we can rest in him because he's a good God. He's our good father. He knows how to give good gifts to his children. And I think that's the heart and the idea of what's being conveyed here. Now, real quickly, let's finish up the chapter. Verse 19, he says, We know that we are of God, And the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. Look at that phrase, the sway of the wicked one. This is really, really, in the Greek, it's it's super descriptive. Uh, And I don't claim to be a Greek scholar, but let me give you a word picture here that just sort of sums this up. When he talks about lying under the sway of the wicked one, the picture is this. It's the picture of a baby, right? 
And I don't know, you know, me, I'm, I'm, I'm a grandfather, my oldest daughter about to have our third grandchild, Megan and Caitlin had in 2011, both my grandbabies, so right now, I got baby everywhere, right, you know, so I, this is fresh in my mind. And my grandson, Holland, he, what is it about kids? They know when you sit down. I mean, it's crazy. I'm holding you in the same position that I was when I was standing up, but you're freaking out now. What is this? Now, they, they, you need to get, what, what do you got to do with the kid? You got to sway them, right? And, and you get them to this place where as long as you hold them in a certain position and you sway them, they're cool, man. Everything's good. But, but if you, you, know, you don't, just handle them just right. And this is, this is Holland, man. He's particular, man. Hold me, sway me, you know. Well, this is the picture here is that Satan is swaying the world. And, and he, gets the, he gets those that, that haven't trusted Christ as their Lord and Savior. He, he sort of gets the world into this place where they're just lulled to sleep. Every time I read this verse, I can't help the, the picture that I... You've you seen the Jungle Book, you know, Mobley, right? And he encounters the snake, and the snake's there. Trust in me, right? And, I, and you're welcome. Now you remember this too every time you read this verse. But that's the idea. Satan's got the whole world in sway and he's just going, trust in me, just in me, close your eyes. And the world's like, oh yeah, you know? And they just completely check out. That's the picture here. Now we continue. He says, the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one, verse 20, and we know that the Son of God has come. Thank you, Jesus. The Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Now, let me better paint this picture for you. Paul does a great job in Ephesians chapter 5. I'll throw it up on the screen for you. Listen to what Paul says. He says, But all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light, Jesus Christ. For whatever makes manifest is light. Therefore, he says, Awake you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. And I want you to picture the scene here. The whole world is laying in sway, man. And you know when you're trying to put a baby to sleep, you don't want light, you don't want noise, you just, hey, leave me alone. Let me take care of this baby, right? And so the, Satan's there to the world, trust in me. And Jesus shows up and he turns on the light and he throws open the door and he says, wake up. And that's what the Lord would say to some of you here today. Satan has you in the sway right now. And this is the Lord showing up and saying to you, wake up. You cannot be held in sway by the enemy. You have to recognize that he's duped you, man. He's, he's leading you astray. He's trying to defile you. He's a pedophile, man, and you're a little kid, and he's trying to put you to sleep so he can take advantage of you. And the Lord shows up and says, Nuh-uh, baby, you wake up. And this is what's happening here. This is the picture. Verse 21, we conclude, John says, little children, and that's what we are, guys. We're children of God. And he says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Keep yourselves from idols. I told you in the beginning, listen, the the question in life isn't will you worship? It's what or who will you worship? And we have to recognize, guys, that If we regard iniquity in our hearts, if we regard idols in our hearts, if we make those, if we worship something other than God, then God's not going to hear our prayers. We're going to be separated from him. We're going to be alienated from him. And so my question for you today as we close is this. Who are you worshiping? What are you worshiping? Do you worship the true and the living God or are you worshiping an idol? Something else in your life. And I would strongly encourage you that as you go from here today, that you, you, as, as you partake of communion today and, and get in your car and leave today, that you prayerfully take a walk with this question, God, do I have any idols in my life? Be prepared because God will reveal them to you. And there's only one thing to do with an idol. You have to destroy it. You have, to get, you have to forsake it. You have to get rid of it. We can't have any idols in our life. Now, there's, there's only one way to keep yourself from idolatry. You know what that is? 
is to worship God. If you put your time, your energies, your focus into worshiping God, then you're not going to have that same time, that same energy, and that same focus to worship your idols. It's, this is why we as a church are, are strongly encouraging and emphasizing. Hey, be in prayer. Be in Bible study. Be in service to God. Be obedient to the Lord and living an obedient Christian life. Be accountable to your brothers and sisters in Christ. Be in fellowship with one another. And the reason we're doing that, hey, listen, as I'm committed myself to prayer, well, then I'm seeking the heart and the mind of God. I'm seeking to be conformed into God's image. As I study the Bible, I'm understanding and knowing what the heart and the mind of God is so that I can be praying effectively. If I'm concentrating on using my gifts and talents to serve God, well, then I'm following in the feet of Jesus Christ. Who Mark 10, 45 says, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So if I focus on doing that, well, then I'm going to become like him. If I focus on being obedient in my Christian life day in and day out, well, then what I'm doing is I'm, I'm being a doer of the word and not a hearer only as we pray in the beginning. And so it's, um, it's, not just, it's not just stuff that, oh yeah, I need to be do, a doer of the word and not hear it. No, I'm saying I want to be like God. I want to worship him and this is how you do it. If I'm putting myself into your life and you're putting yourself into my life in a real way saying, I want to be accountable to you. I want you to be accountable to me. And if we'll do that, then what will happen is, well, the Bible says, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens the countenance of his friend. The, the, the Bible says that it's an enemy that multiplies kisses, but faithful are the wounds of a friend. And, and if we're getting into an accountability kind of fellowship here where it's more than news, weather, and sports, it's more than, you know, hi, Christian bubble, hi, how you doing? Life's good, everything's good, but we're actually getting down and doing, doing the, the, the hard work that Christians do. Well, then I can say, hey, dude, I'm seeing something in your life. And you go, well, that's a wound. And I go, yeah, faithful are the wounds of the friend. I'm not trying to knock you down. I'm just trying to point out something here so that you can, you can be encouraged. And this is important, this fellowship. The Bible says, bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. How can I bear your burden if I don't know you? How can you bear my burden if you don't know me? And so these are the things that we focus here at Reliance Church. And this is not a Reliance Church commercial. This is not me telling you, here's our programs for you to get plugged in. Here's what I'm saying. If you want to worship God instead of worshiping idols, then these things that I've described need to be the hallmark of your life. You need to be able to say, yep, doing that. Yep, doing that. Yeah, and if you, if you can't, then I will submit to you you are struggling big time with idols in your life because you will worship something. That's not the question. What are you going to worship? Who are you going to worship? As you focus on these things, that's what's going to make the difference. We're going to partake of communion today as we do at the end of every service. The bread representing Jesus' body broken for us and the juice representing his blood shed on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. And what I want to encourage you today is as we partake of communion, well, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11 that a man first needs to examine himself. And I would encourage you as we partake of communion today to examine yourself and to see, oh, you know, do I have those idols? Man, have I really trusted the Lord Jesus Christ? Examine yourself.